Hey everybody, Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast here. Just want to let you know the Modiphius US store is open. You can pre-order hard copies of ICRPG Master Edition and Viking Death Squad right now. Links are in the show notes. You can also go to DriveThruRPG and get PDF copies if you don't want dead tree copies. So go support Runehammer, great guy, great company, and great games. Well, pop yourself a beer or a cold libation. Let me tell you how I wrote this little thing. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him what you got. He said I'll start off with some talking and some movie clips, some popcorn fighting, fantasy explorations, and some groundless exploitation. Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxings, full month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I'll let the box come on, contest and a push. You know it's all about games. I said slow down, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds. With the other Jason. Jason from the future here. Later in this episode, I'm going to do a segment where I talk about Game Master narrative metacurrencies. And the intention is to talk about whether we can take lessons learned from games that use GM metacurrencies and apply those lessons to games that do not use narrative metacurrencies to make those games better. That's what I wanted to talk about. As you'll hear, I don't do a good job presenting my argument at all. And when you jump forward in time to episode 256, four days after this episode was published, you I will reap what I sowed, and you will hear the confusion that was wrought. So I just wanted to prepare you for that. Let's get on with the episode. Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. Got an exciting show for you today. We have a session recap of Reaver, the upcoming sword and sorcery game by Raven Guy Games. And I open up a discussion about narrative mechanics in games. Do we need mechanical aids to play a narrative game? And I look forward to your input on this ongoing discussion. But let's talk about that input for a minute. So in the past, I've tried, unsuccessfully, to do two episodes a week. The Ideally doing one like Saturday night and then one Wednesday afternoon. And, you know, for a little while that works and then I get a special episode I need to publish, so I plug that in. And there'll still be special episodes being plugged in every now and then. But I really want to get to that two-episode-a-week point because I don't want to inundate you with too much stuff. One of the best things about the show are all the call-ins. I love the interaction with the, with the callers, you, my listeners. I love answering back and forth, the ongoing discussions, and, and that's integral to what the show has become, and I want to keep that going. But sometimes it keeps me from – there's so many calls, it keeps me from putting the content episodes out where I'm doing – yeah, like I owe you guys actual plays and I owe you game reviews and all these things. And, and it's hard to do when I've already got like an hour's worth of calls. So what I'm going to do is – and I'm and I'm very interested in your input. Please call in. Let me know what you think about this format change. But my intention is to do this. I, I'm going to switch up. I'm still going to do effectively two content episodes a week. So on Saturday and Wednesday, I'll publish a content episode, which might be 
you know, session recaps. It might be thought pieces like today. It might be actual plays, whatever. And there might be a call or two sprinkled in there. That's possible. But what I'm going to do is put calls in a separate show. And I'm not going to put that off and like once every two weeks have a call-in show. I'm not going to do that to you. What I'm going to do is the day after the content episode, if I have enough calls, even if I don't have enough calls, well, you know, within reason, as long as I have, say, you know, enough for a 10-minute show, I'll release a call-in episode the next day. So Saturday, you'll get content. Sunday, you'll get a call-in episode. Wednesday, you'll get content. Thursday, you'll get a call-in episode. And that way I'm still publishing the calls in a timely manner and we're, we're still getting that back and forth, but it's also letting me get the content out there. So we're going to try that for a while. Now, if I only have like one or two calls, then I might wrap them in the content episode or I might hold them until the next call-in episode, you know, which would be half a week later. So, so we're going to play that by ear. But that's kind of my intention right now is to do a content episode one day, the call-in episode the next day, and do that twice a week. So I'm very open to your thoughts on that. This is going to be the first show of that new format. I know it's Friday, not Saturday, but whatever. I, I, I owe you guys a show. So today is going to be a content episode. Tomorrow, Saturday, is going to be a call-in episode. And then on Wednesday, we'll have another content episode, and Thursday, another call episode. And then I'll pick back up Saturday and so forth, so on and so forth. Hopefully you're as confused right now as I am. That way we're all on the same page. So let's get into this content episode with a review, or not a review, but with a session recap of the most recent game of Joe Salvador's wonderful game, Reaver. Gaming recap. Vorpal Cat of Nine Tails. So we had another session of Joe Salvador's Reaver his Raven Guy Games upcoming Sword and Sorcery RPG. I talked a little bit about the mechanics during the last session recap I did, so I'm not going to talk about those again. Needless to say, when the quick start hit hits the quick start kit hits the market, I will let everybody know. When you last left our group of adventurers in the last session recap, we were reconvened in my quarters in the city, and the city was in a riot. There's an invading army on the outskirts of the city, and we had to get out of the city. Just a quick character recap. Carl Rodriguez is playing a shaman, Ascold the Lame. Another gentleman who doesn't have a podcast is playing a fighter called Laszlo, who's kind of stupid and kind of a thug. And I'm playing a, a thief who's kind of also a thug named Brutus the Bald. So the city's kind of in, in revolt. There's riots going on all throughout the city. There seems to be a plot maybe to overthrow the king. There's an evading army outside. And there's a thief I know that's being charged as a spy. And I know he's not, well, I, I don't think he's really a spy. And it sounds like they're trying to pin this on him. So we figure if we, with this city in uproar right now, the jail might be lightly defended, so we could probably go to the jail, get him out, and take him with us, and then use either sell him you know, to somebody else for a big bounty or get information from him that we could sell to somebody else. So we think there might be value in getting him out of prison, not just because he's my buddy, but because he might have valuable information. 
or, or be a good bargaining chip. Cause like I say, we're, you know, pretty much all thugs in this game. So I, I think Carl's pure hearted, but his, his shaman's pure hearted, but he's fell in with us. Anyhow. So, so we, we go through the city and Laszlo, the fighter who had stabbed a, a guy to death in the street brawl in the previous session recap, he was recognized by some guy who ran off and Laszlo tried to chase him, but he couldn't catch the guy. So we kept going to the, to the jail. We find the jail and, or not find the jail, but we get to the jail and we see that there's troops all marching towards the walls, towards the gates to reinforce the gates. And there's a guy in front of the jail telling some of the other guards, you know, we don't know what's going on. I'm, you stay here. I'm going to go and find out what's happening. And, but there doesn't seem to be as many guards as normally is. So we managed to ambush this guy that was going to go find out what was happening. And we drag him into the bushes and, you know, kind of pummel him. Um, we're, we're, we're kind of wrestling with this guy on the ground and, and the shaman uses basically kind of like power, uh, a power word or command and knocks the guy out. He basically tells the guy that, that he's dead, which doesn't kill the guy, but mentally he shuts down. So Laszlo strips some of his armor and we do the old star Wars prisoner trick. So Laszlo dresses in the armor and he, we just really, really loosely bound our hands. So it looks like we're bound and he takes us to jail like we're prisoners. And so he, he managed to get in the jail and, and he tells the other guards, you need to go help the king. The king's in the, you know, was giving a speech and he's in danger and there's an invading army and get out there, help the king. And so the, the one guard that was left in the jail goes, but one guard stays and he seems to be the main guy, the torturer, you, you know, the torture master and the, and the main jailer. So when the other guy goes, um, Laszlo slips or not Laszlo, um, Carl's character Asgold slips off his bonds and shuts the door. My character dives and tackles this big jailer and, and Laszlo goes to, to kill him with a spear, but he does, he manages just to wound him, not kill him. At which point the, the jailer, you, you know, gives up and surrenders. So Laszlo knocks him out, rolls him in front of the door. Cause he's kind of a big fat guy. Laszlo stays up top and starts rooting through this guy's room in which the most interesting thing he found, he found some helmets and some other things, but he also found this silver hedgehog, kind of um, like a flask that has perfume or something in it. It's kind of interesting. But my character, um, Brutus and Asgold the Shaman, go downstairs in the basement where the prisoners are kept, and it's smelly and nasty down there. And we, we go down there, and we, we find, we we figure that the guy we're looking for, Cato, this, this thief who's being framed, we figured he wouldn't be with the general population because they wouldn't want him telling anything. And we were right. We found him in isolation. We got him out. He was beat up pretty bad. They cut off one of his fingers and, you know, he's in bad shape. So Asgold helped him upstairs. I told him to make sure all the doors stayed open. And once they were safely upstairs, I went to the general population door, just a big area, big room with a bunch of prisoners in there. And there, there were no more guards. And I, and I told the prisoners, I'm going to let you guys out. Just go towards the street. The city's in revolt. The city's yours. Take it. And I opened the door and they rushed out and they're all kind of crazy. It's, it's like letting out Arkham Asylum. And they all rush up the door hooting and hollering. And some of them 
fall on that jailer that was left up top and, and start ripping him apart. And some of them just ran into the street. And of course we let them do it, do their thing. I get back up there. And as soon as we can, we get out of the jail and we start. And so we had talked about this during the session that there would probably be, there's a walled city, but there would probably be a secret entrance that the thieves guild uses to smuggle things in and out. We talked about where that would be. And of course it's on the opposite end of the city from where we're at, but it makes sense thematically. So, so it's cool. And, um, so we start working our way to there to go out the secret entrance through the wall. And unfortunately, all of a sudden that guy that ran off before, you know, I, I don't know if it was him or somebody else, but I think it was him. But anyway, there, there are a, a bunch of guys are in the street and they're carrying like pitchforks and, you, you know, um, spades and, you know, farm implements and whatnot. And they point at Laszlo and go, there he is, get him. And, and, and they kind of start running at us, and that's where we ended the session. So it was a really fun session. Oh, I didn't explain the Cat of Nine Tails. So the reason it's Vorpal Cat of Nine Tails is this big jailer who we took down had a Cat of Nine Tails, and he was going to swing it at us, but we took him out before he had a chance to hit us with it. And Carl Shaman decided to claim that Cat of Nine Tails as, as his, so he picked it up and claimed it and added it to his equipment. Well, you know, he joked. You know, is it a Vorpal Cat of Nine Tails? And, and so that's where the episode name comes from, Vorpal Cat of Nine Tails, but, which Carl said was his goth band in high school, which very, you know, Vorpal Cat of Nine Tails does sound like a, some kind of crazy, you know, goth band name or something, or, or a manga or anime or something. So, but it was a lot of fun, great session, and I look forward to playing the next one. So that was the session recap for Reaver. After re-listening to this before publishing, I realized I didn't mention, after finding that Silver Hedgehog of Perfume, we, we had a discussion. Laszlo's player is now adamant that if Laszlo dies, he's, his next character will be a, a merchant, probably a crooked merchant, who peddles illegal perfumes and illegal substances through the caravan routes. So that ought to be fun. And now, a word from our sponsor. Desperate times call for desperate measures. You have to look for a hero. Like Joe Richter, the greatest Pathfinder 2 GM ever to roll a dice. The role-playing convention scene is under assault. Edgelords. Body odor. Gatekeepers. Overpriced stale concession food. Illinois Nazis. Satanic panic. We're doing all we can. And Washington's hands are tied. We make the laws in this country. There's only one thing to do, and he'll do it with one of the toughest fighter pilots who ever lived, retired Colonel Cappy Sinclair. You heard right, folks. When the chips are down, the chappies get going. Joe Richter is going to put on RichterCon 2020X. The most amazing role-playing convention the world has ever seen. Don't miss out. Before we do the narrative game mechanics segment, I'm going to do an unboxing. But I'm not going to do it. Carl Rodriguez, the Gemologist Presents, is going to do it because something possessed him to record it and send it to me instead of putting it out on his wonderful podcast. So if you like what you hear during the next four minutes, I would recommend you go check out the Gemologist Presents. After that, 
we're going to launch into this narrative mechanics discussion. Hey, Jason, I'm going to call this our um, your guest unboxing. I was so excited today about the fried chicken, and I come home, and there's a three pack giant packages. So um, maybe I'll open one of them and then send this to you, and you could put on your show because your show is pretty damn awesome and gets a lot more people to listen to than my show. Um, maybe I'll get there one of these days and be famous like you. So uh, here we go. Uh, this is a United States Postal Service priority mail envelope. It says, do not bend a flat, one of the standard flat rate envelopes. It is coming from uh, Freak Toys in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. So no, it did not pass by your house or anything because it probably went straight down uh, from Wisconsin to San Antonio. Um, priority to mail two-day thingy. So here we go. I have my handy-dandy uh, box cutter named Anvil. Well, that's the name of the brand. And we'll open it because it doesn't, or at least start the opening of it because it doesn't look like it's an easy opener thing. Don't slice yourself or slice the package. What could it be, Jason? I don't remember what it is. I really don't remember. I order a lot of stuff. As you know, I'm probably bending it more than the male people bend it, bent it as I try to open it. There we go. Finally tore it open. All right, so inside, it's a two pieces of cardboard. Where actually the item is wrapped in two pieces of cardboard. And yeah, let's be careful about this as I open it. Unhook the cardboard from the contents. I guess that's kind of cool to put it in cardboard, but I don't want to cut up the product in the middle. So, thank you, it says, a little postcardy thing from Freak Toys Collectibles. As I turn this baby over, it is in a magazine. Oh, with a board. I love bags and boards, especially for these older products. And it is in a magazine size bag and board. Um, and inside is, oops, it looks like I cut the, the bag. I'll have to put another bag. I will keep the board. The bag is cut up because I'm dumber with my, with Anvil. Anvil got a little um, overzealous. And here it is, Allegheny Uprising, Twilight 2000. I do not have this one yet. This is, uh, yeah, if you were, let's see. It was enough to make a man's mouth water. Still has a $7 price tag on it, believe it or not. Um, computers, electric typewriters, Jeeps, soybeans, canned food, medical supplies, Arctic parkas, and videotapes of any every NFL game since 1922. No wonder those Civ Dev Johnnies were falling all over themselves to find the place. Olive has heard of a million rumors about lost government caches, squirreled, caches squirreled away in, in out-of-the-way places years ago, a security against nuclear attack. Most of those stories were just air, of course. I remember there was this one about gold. So Allegheny Uprising is uh, Maryland... Western Maryland 
in Pennsylvania, where the adventure takes place, so a primer of that, various organizations, marauders and local defense forces, etc., etc., background material of Pennsylvania's recent history, uh, on the secret supply cache, so civil war between native inhabitants of the Allegheny Mountains and refugees, so pretty cool. So it's like, you know, post-apocalyptic adventure in western Pennsylvania. Sounds pretty cool. Maybe you guys will get there. Do we need narrative tools in RPGs? Or can that just be done by the Dungeon Master without any specific mechanics? A lot of games, and, and I'm sure there are older games that had this to some degree, but a, a lot of new games incorporate actual hard mechanics using dice rolls and metacurrency, such as Benny's or Doom or, you know, various other things to empower the Dungeon Master to do narrative things. Is this needed? I don't know. Do we worry that without the tools, the game might turn out like this? Now, to be fair, some of us, Joe Richter of Hindsightless and myself, would play the hell out of that game. But I'm sure it wouldn't be to everybody's liking. So, considering that, do we need to have mechanical aids to the GM, or the G should the GM just be empowered to do what's right for the game? I think that's an interesting question. It kind of goes back to the idea, is the GM a neutral referee or are they playing the antagonists as antagonists? Now, Taylor over the Clerics Were Ringmail podcast and blog has been trying to push this agenda that, attack, that antagonistic play is different than being the GM as an antagonist. You don't have to be trying to kill the players to play the villains in a challenging way. And I agree with what he says over there. Do we need mechanics to play villains in an interesting way? Savage Worlds gives the GM bennies that they can spend for the bad guys. Your 2D20 systems give the GM Doom, or whatever it's called in other versions of that game that they can spin to trigger effects. Do GMs need that, or should they just be able to trigger effects when it's appropriate? If you watch the Runehammer channel on YouTube, Once Upon a Time, the Drunkens and Dragons channel, old Hankren, who mainly plays lighter games, he plays stripped-down versions of D20 Fantasy. So ICRPG, which is... Uh, 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 started as house ruled 5e and then really got stripped down into its own system, which is, of course, far superior to 5e. Uh, OSE re more recently, although the OSE he plays is also stripped down. But even though he plays these simpler games that do not have narrative mechanics built into them, he also 
on his channel reviews books and he does D if you look back in the history you can find episodes on dungeon master homework and that homework is reading other game books and some of those game books do include these kind of mechanics you know he talks about reading things like blades in the dark he talks about dungeon world he i'd have to go back and look but why is he telling you to read these books if he doesn't incorporate those mechanics in his game because the ideas in those books can help you rethink how you run the game and I really feel that if you read those books and read through all these interesting systems and internalize what they're trying to do, you don't need the mechanical bits to do that. You can incorporate those things that those books want you to do and, and that they're teaching you without having to roll dice to do them or having to spend nebulous metacurrency to do them. It's the same reason he recommends books on architecture. And room design, because talk real-world architecture. Not that he expects you to design your dungeon exactly like an architect would or expects you to learn to be a professional architect. But if you read those books and incorporate the lessons they're teaching, it will help you make more realistic dungeons and things that make sense. You know, layouts of, if you, you know, when you make a keep, the layout will make sense and it'll feel more real to the players. There are sometimes maybe you don't want it to make sense. You, you know, when you watch The Shining, Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick, intentionally designed the hotel so it didn't make sense. If you walk, there, there are videos on this, but if you walk through the, watch that movie and see how they walk through the layout of it, it, it actually doesn't make sense. If you, like, mapped when Jack's walking around, like during his interview, early in the movie, like that map won't work. And Kubrick does that intentionally to throw you off, to give you a feeling of unease. Because even though you don't, in your conscious mind, know it, your subconscious knows this doesn't work. And I think that's also true for the players. So if your layout of the keep or the local inn doesn't make any sense... Even if it's not consciously, the player is going to unconsciously sense that and it's going to pull them out, which is why Hank wants you to look at these books on architecture and things like that. And, and I think the same applies to these books, these newer systems, new age games, storytelling games, whatever we want to call them. I'm a fan of all RPGs, so if I say storytelling or beer and pretzels or whatever, I'm not putting those games down. I like games of all genres, so... I'm not a hater in, in those respects. Yeah, I, I don't like 5e, but that, that's neither here nor there. Um, and, and I don't like red communists, but now we're getting off track. The point being that, you know, you can read in, in these lessons from these games and incorporate them without incorporating the crunchy mechanical bits in there. I'm sure some of you are yelling at your podcast device right now. But if you've run these other games, if you've run 2D20 games, if you've run Savage Worlds games, well, let's go to the 2D20 game, right? If you've run that game before, why couldn't you, if you have some self-control, why couldn't you just empower the NPCs to do the things you would do with Doom anyway? Why can't you just incorporate those effects anyway as the Dungeon Master? You, you should have that power as a Dungeon Master. The Dungeon Master should not, and I know Arlen would walk or buy from Helm's Wasteland, may disagree with me on this, 
Although I think if this was established in session zero, he'd be okay with it. But I know he probably doesn't like it as a principal. But you as the dungeon master, especially if we look at rule zero, you're not hindered by the written rules. You're not bound by the same rules the players are. Yes, I know people don't want to hear that, but in many games, it explicitly tells you you're not. And if you're not bound by those rules, provided you're not power-hungry, provided you don't abuse it, why shouldn't you use that DM fiat to your advantage and to the you know to make the game more interesting for the players? May you live in interesting times. May the dragon breathe on you when it's appropriate, right? May that, you know, villain shrug off that blow or escape when it's appropriate. Why do you as the DM need to spend meta currency to do that? Now, if you do it all the time to protect NPCs that you've fallen in love with, DM's favorites, then you're messing up and you're a bad DM and you need to break that habit. That's bad behavior on the DM's part. The DM should not have any favorites. There shouldn't be plot armor for anybody in RPGs. If the players manage to drop your big bad with a lucky shot, you know what? That's okay because you can. that big bad could answer to another big bad where you can rework the plot. Not plot per se because it's not plotted out. Well, it shouldn't be plotted out like a novel. But you know what I'm saying. You can. There, there's always another bad guy off in the wings. And sometimes the players need that win. Sometimes it's okay for them to get that win. It's okay. So I'm not saying to use DM Fiat as plot armor for NPCs, but I'm saying, do you really need Doom? And do you really need to sit there in front of the players and say, ha, I'm going to spend two Doom now, or darn, I'm out of Doom, so this guy can't escape? Or do you just do it? You know, do I know some people like talking the meta currency and talking the me- meta mechanics during the session, and some don't. And that will depend on you and your group. And neither method's wrong. It will just depend on the players and and the preferences at that table. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that are thinking, I'm taking this too far. But I am curious on your thoughts. And I know this works because we see people that do this method. We see people that play games without mechanical narrative bits in narrative ways all the time. You, you know, so we I know it's possible. I know it's doable. And wouldn't the game run smoother if you weren't worried about counting how many doom you have? And wouldn't the game run that much smoother if you weren't worrying about all the stuff on the DM side, but you were just doing what makes sense? I don't know. That's my question to you, the listener. Okay, folks, I look forward to your feedback on that last section. And again, if you like using Doom or Bennies for your villains, then keep doing it. There's nothing wrong with that. My only question is, is it needed? Or is it adding extra crunch where you could just be running the game without it? I I realize it's going to be helpful for some people. Some people like using it, and they should use it. Again, there's no wrong, bad way to do this. I'm just posing the question, is it adding mechanics that we don't need? So that's that. Please give me your feedback. You can leave a message on Anchor using the app or go to my website on the, you know, on your computer and you can leave a message that way. You can send an email to nerdsrpgvarietycast@gmail.com. If you attach an audio file, I can play it on the air and make you famous. 
you can reach out to me on Discord. I'm on a bunch of Discords. And I look forward to your calls. Here tomorrow, I will have an episode published with a bunch of calls. But before that, I am going to play one call, but it ties in with the Vulcan Diaries. We haven't heard the Vulcan Diaries for a couple episodes, but I've been sitting on this call for a while. This is from Daniel Norton of Bandit's Keep. So I want to play this episode. I'll give you a really short update. This is a, a really short Vulcan Diaries. And immediately after that, we're going into the outro. So if you want to hear the Vulcan Diaries, hang around. If not, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Welcome back to the Vulcan Diaries, where I talk about my motorcycle experiences and we talk about transportation and other non-RPG things. I have recently gotten the hard saddlebags or the panners for my bike, so that's very cool. Now I can carry more stuff around with me when I'm riding, which is helpful because it gives me a good place to put my rain gear and stuff like that, so I'm very happy with that. Aside from maybe getting a more comfortable seat, uh, Corbin makes a nice seat. They're like 500 bucks, but they, they make a nice, a little bit more padded seat than what I have now. Um, I'm pretty much done modifying the bike. It's just putting the miles on it now. I do have a call I want to play from Daniel Norton. And this is in reference to the idea that your car's black boxes might report you when you get, when you're speeding and, you know, report you to the authorities. So let's hear what Daniel has to say. Hey, Jason, talking about tracking people and the subpoenas and everything, I think it's really interesting. And I mean, this is only anecdotal evidence, but um, I can tell you that in New York City, there are cameras everywhere. You know, if you're walking up and down the street, you're being recorded almost certainly. However, they don't keep it all the information for the reason that they just can't store it all. And in fact, when my studio was robbed a couple of years ago, uh, it took them so long to pull the subpoena that the cameras had all already been deleted. Like they only keep it for like a week. So uh, there was no evidence of the criminal coming in and out of the building. Interestingly enough, the building itself in their private security keeps it for a month. So we did get camera footage there, but the police actually did not have the footage. So I doubt very much they're going to track every mile that people drive so they can give you a speeding ticket. I think if you're being investigated, oh, yeah, they're going to track you. But uh, they're not going to have that much information on you. So, I, you know, I'm not overly worried about that. You know, but then again, you know, 2022 could be 1984. Maddie's angry that Daniel cut himself off, but I think we got the gist of his message. And, and I don't think you're wrong for the most part. I think obviously that could change. And if you add something that automatically sent a signal, something like automatic traffic cameras, I, I think it would be pretty easy to implement if they wanted to. But m- maybe the more often it would be used is if you're in a crash and the black box shows you're going over the speed limit, you would automatically get a speed t- speeding ticket in addition to that reckless driving ticket they like to give you when you whenever you're in a at least a single vehicle accident, right? I I don't know, Daniel. I, I think you make some good points, though. And they're definitely not at the point of information storage and be able to filter through information to do it universally by any means. So we're not quite in that 1984 state yet. But I did find an interesting article in relation to electric vehicles. Now, this is for the United Kingdom. So it, it only affects the people across the pond for right now. But I've included a link in the show notes. Go read it. It's interesting. New homes over there, starting in 2022, have to have electric car chargers installed, or at least there's a something that says maybe they're going to have to. There's a link to that in that article at the bottom. And it also talks about how they're going to limit when residential you know, electric car chargers can be used. So they're going to, at peak times, you're not going to be able to charge your car at home, which... 
you, you know, depending on the grid, they're making you buy electric cars. You're going to have to have electric cars. You're not going to be able to buy gas cars after a certain date in England, but they're also going to limit when you can charge your car. So for two two car households, it's going to be difficult for them. They're also implementing the thing that I've seen them talk about here in the U.S. with these grids where when the grid needs power, they'll suck power back. It's a two-way street. So they might suck power out of your car to help stabilize the grid when it's hooked up to a charger or suck power from your house to you know stabilize the grid. So for all those of you out there looking forward to this bright new tomorrow, be ready for some brownouts. Okay, that's enough for Vulcan Diaries today. I know it's a little bit of a downer note. Ultimately, with you know inflation going up, our our new national recession coming. Look at the prices of your products, your meat prices, your different prices are starting to get scarce in the grocery stores. Prices are going up. I don't know what to tell you. I I know I'm sounding like a doomer and gloomer here, and it'll eventually get better. I hope. That's me knocking on wood, but I I think things are going to get tighter before they get better, unfortunately. Um, Okay, that's enough of that. Go out, play some games, have some fun, and I will talk to everybody tomorrow. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Your auntie or a joke about your spouse But the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head And the only question left is if I could shoot him dead Bring on the gold, bring on the gold I want some more, bring on the gold is a dustman and your moil is quite a tipper And I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Well the zombies are arising and the world has gone to hell We're living for the dying and we're dying for the train wreck